True Crime South Africa is published in conjunction with Arena Holdings, publishers of Times Live, Business Live, Sowetan Live and others. The opinions expressed in this podcast do not necessarily represent the views of Arena Holdings and its affiliates. A woman is believed to have left her home in the leafy suburbs of Constantia. When she doesn't arrive for work, her employer immediately reaches out to her family members. As the hours tick by, there is no sign of her, and then the fire department responds to an emergency call. A car is on fire, and there is something, or someone, in the boot. This is True Crime South Africa. I'm Nicole Engelbrecht, and this is episode 59, The Murder of Jill Packham. This episode is sponsored by Print Crowd. As the gig economy starts to take hold and more people create their own streams of income, one thing that is always a necessity for businesses of any size is printed material. Business cards, pamphlets, stickers and so much more can become a nightmare of quote comparison, back and forth on artwork and finding a trusted supplier. Enter Print Crowd. Print Crowd is your partner in printing. Get an instant quote on their website, upload your artwork, pay online and track your order until it arrives at your door. Print Crowd puts you in charge of your project by providing excellent customer service and keeping you up to date every step of the way with their state-of-the-art software and technology. Using the best machines, specifically designed for your unique needs, Print Crowd guarantees the highest standard and quality every time. Today, Print Crowd is offering True Crime South Africa listeners 10% off their order and an opportunity to support the show by using the code TCSA10 at checkout. That's TCSA10 at checkout for 10% off all your printed material requirements from the comfort of your home. A huge thank you to Print Crowd for supporting True Crime South Africa. Before we get into today's episode, I'd like to thank our new Patreon supporters. A huge thank you goes out to Belinda Levinson, Nikki van Gelder, and Sydney Dark for your support on Patreon. Thank you so much, everyone. Your support really does make a huge difference. If you'd like to support the show on Patreon or PayPal, I'll leave a link in the show notes. There are now additional ways that you can support the show, with two online businesses providing 10% discounts when you use the code TCSA10 at checkout. You can get your health and beauty needs at King Online, and you can get all your printing requirements designed, printed and delivered by Print Crowd. You can also help to support me as an individual creator by checking out the companion podcast I created with Showmax for the Devil's Dorp documentary, or by purchasing the Krugersdorp Cult Killings audiobook on Audible, Google Play Books, or Apple Books. As always, 
Any form of support is greatly appreciated, and it doesn't have to be financial. Sharing of episodes, inviting your friends and family to listen, and interacting on social media all go a long way to keeping the show growing and improving. You can also leave a review on the podcast app you use to listen. If your podcast platform does not have that option, a Google or Facebook review is equally helpful. Today's episode is likely a case you have heard about before. I thought I knew about it too, until I started to research it. If you, like me, watched this case being covered on the Mnet series Strangers You Know earlier this year, you would have seen family members of the victim in this case talking about her. I think seeing Jill Packham's sisters talk about who she was as a person and just how deeply she was betrayed by the man who took her life prompted me to want to look deeper into this case. Intimate partner violence and murder has become almost a daily occurrence in South Africa. So much so that we almost don't even read past the headlines anymore. If the perpetrator is convicted and handed down a considerable sentence, we feel like justice has been done and we move on. But if we take the time to look a little closer, not only will each victim tell her own story, but we'll see that there are lessons to be taken from each and every one of these tragic violations of trust. I would like to thank Emma Neville for her assistance in researching this case. Sources used for research include the Heisgenoot Vare Levensdramas episode of this case, as well as the episode of Strangers You Know, the appeal documents of Safley, several media articles, and several hours of trial footage available on YouTube. So let's get into Episode 59, The Murder of Jill Packham. The following episode may contain sensitive material including descriptions of violence, sexual assault or graphic descriptions of injuries to victims. If you feel you may be triggered by such material, please consider this before accessing our content. To access trauma counseling or services, please see the helpline information on our show notes. Gillian Beatrice Humphrey was born on the 21st of March 1962. She was the middle child of five siblings. Jill attended Johannesburg Arts, Ballet and Music School and Bryanston High School and matriculated in 1980. She then went on to earn a secretarial diploma from Damlin Secretarial College in Johannesburg. Between 1984 and 1987, Jill worked as a secretary for audit and financial services firm Deloitte. While I was unable to determine the exact year that Jill married Rob Packham, from all accounts it appears to have been in 1988 or close thereto. Robin Leslie William Packham was born in 1960. By the time he met Jill, he was close to qualifying as a chartered accountant. I tend to think, looking at dates and correlations, 
that he and Joel may have met through the company Deloitte. Soon after marrying, the couple welcomed their daughters, Carrie-Anne and Nicola, into the world. And at some point, the Peckham family moved from Johannesburg to the leafy southern suburbs of Cape Town. The girls, later as young women, would describe their parents' relationship as loving and warm. Kerry Ann would say that Rob was a caring father who she and her sister could always go to for advice. It's difficult for me to talk about Rob's daughter's descriptions of him, only because we know where we find ourselves with the man today. But I think it's important to acknowledge their experience of their father. Human beings are complex creatures, and although they may be unsuccessful in certain areas of their lives, that's not to say they can't be different in other areas. Regardless of what would come to pass in later years, the Packham girls clearly had a good experience of their parents' relationship and their father's ability to parent. Children, of course, do not always see the hidden dynamics within the home. Rob Packham, despite qualifying as a chartered accountant, did not work in this role for very long. He had a diverse and often changing career path, which, if I'm honest, is a bit strange for someone of his generation. While people of later generations would be able to embrace career movements and regularly changing positions and roles, Rob's generation were more commonly fixed in their attitude to work. We don't have much information about his earlier career, but certainly from around the year 2000, he jumped around quite a bit in his work and was very often unsuccessful in his business endeavours. Jill appears to have stopped working for a while when her children were younger, but she would head back into the workforce when Rob's career took a nosedive. In or around the year 2000, Rob was the CEO of a company called Freecom. He would later tell people that he had left this position due to the business relocating, but I found a blog article that suggests that there might have been more to it. When Packham's name later hit the news, a man who had worked at Freecom as a strategy consultant wrote a short blog post about the strategy behind the litigation of Rob Packham's case. As part of the preamble, he declared that he had worked at Freecom for several years while Rob was CEO, and he said, quote, Also, I need to disclose that I consulted on Freecom Group PTYLTD for a couple of years more than a decade ago. Rob Packham was the managing director at the time. I terminated my consultancy at Freecom Group due to differences over fees, policy and ethics. I did meet Jill Packham on a few occasions, albeit briefly. On my departure as the Freecom Group Strategy Consultant, I confidentially emailed a cautionary notice to the company's auditors. 
my professional opinion was that it was in the interests of the company's stakeholders to be advised of my concerns. Rob Packham subsequently emailed me to say that my position was now interesting. End quote. The reason that I found this statement pertinent is that it seems that Rob Packham's personal and professional lives seem to have started a downward spiral during this time. It is, of course, difficult to know exactly what the nature of the strategy consultant's concerns were, but considering he kept his communications confidential and he cites his reasons for leaving as differences over, quote, fees, policy, and ethics, end quote, and taking into account that Packham was managing director, or he sometimes referred to himself as CEO at the time, the buck stopped with him. And it does make me wonder what was happening behind the scenes. Relatively soon after this, Packham was no longer employed by Freecomp. He then decided he wanted to work for himself and purchased an Intercomputers franchise. The business failed dismally, and he and his family suffered significant financial loss. The Packhams had to sell their house and their holiday home. Rob remained unemployed for seven months. Jill had kept her skills fresh, despite having taken some time to stay at home with her children. She'd worked as a researcher for Stellenbosch University on a contract basis, and when Rob lost his business, she started running bed and breakfasts across Cape Town to keep the family going. It would be Jill's strength and determination that would get the Packhams through this difficult period. Around 2014, Rob eventually found a job again. He was appointed as managing director of Cape Cookies, a biscuit-producing company. There are still pictures and articles related to Rob's period of employment at this business on their website, and he's seen handing over donations to several different charity organisations. I worked in corporate for 20 years of my life, and the last part of that was spent at an executive level. People that are employed into executive management positions tend to stay in those positions for a good couple of years. They aren't really high turnover positions for the most part. But from what I could gather, in less than a year, Rob had changed jobs again. By 2015, he was hired as general manager of Twizzer a soft drink company in Belleville. Around the same time, Jill started working at a school in Weinberg, Springfield Convent, as a secretary. It was not just Rob's professional life that was fast-changing and disrupted during this time. It would later be alleged that Rob Packham had not remained faithful to Jill for very long after they got married. It would also be alleged by Jill's sisters that Rob's tastes in the bedroom were very different from Jill's. The sisters would say in the Strangers You Know episode, and it would be reported in the media, 
that Rob was part of the BDSM scene in Cape Town, and he belonged to a swingers group. The B in BDSM stands for bondage. The D alternately stands for both discipline and dominance. The S stands for submission and or sadism, and the M stands for masochism. While many people might raise an eyebrow at this and picture BDSM as something perverted that happens in dark basements, there's really nothing at all wrong with the practice itself. Just like any other sexual fetish, as long as it's practiced by consenting adults in a trusting and safe environment, it can be an enjoyable and exciting experience for those that partake in it. In Rob's case, though, he appeared to be doing this behind his wife's back. I also mentioned that Rob was allegedly involved in swinging groups. Swinging is a practice in which generally married or coupled individuals swap partners for sexual encounters and sometimes engage in group sex. Again, when done consensually, there's absolutely nothing wrong with this practice. While there's very little research about the practice of swinging, it is estimated that up to 10% of American couples have engaged in swinging practices at some point in their marriage or relationship. Very often, the emotional aspects of seeing partners with other people gets in the way. Rob, though, was not engaging in these groups as part of a couple. Jill is believed to have initially had no idea he was involved in these activities. It is rare for singles to be brought into swinging groups, but it does happen. It is really unknown how long Rob was continuing these hidden activities for before Jill found out, but it would later emerge that Rob's daughter, Nicola, had discovered evidence of his extramarital affairs. I can only guess at how devastating this must have been for the young woman, as she was now put in a position where she had the knowledge of her father's activities and realized that her mother had no idea. Nicola would later say that she had insisted that her father tell her mother. If he didn't, she would. At this time, Rob and Jill were living in Riesling Road in Constantia. They'd started to work their way back up financially, and the home they lived in had a separate cottage, which they rented out to an elderly couple for additional income. Jill was also still helping to run a bed and breakfast. Photographs of the couple and their daughters around this time show smiling faces and warm embraces. Jill's sisters would describe Jill as one of the kindest and most gracious people they'd ever known. At social occasions, she was welcoming and generous, and the couple had a wide circle of friends. Jill loved gardening, and her sister says her knowledge of plants was impeccable. Jill would design a garden bed for her sister, and it is an area of her garden she still cherishes to this day. 
But Nicola Packham was still carrying the dark knowledge of her father's betrayal, and in 2017 things came to a head. She gave her father an ultimatum. Tell mom now, or I will do it. At that time, Rob was involved in an extramarital affair with a woman who was divorced with two young children. The identity of the woman would later be legally barred from being released to protect her children. She's been referred to as Ms. X. It's unknown exactly how long Ms. X and Rob had been in a relationship for, but she'd later say that he told her that he and his wife were in the process of separating. The truth was, of course, that Jill still had no idea that her husband was being unfaithful. Sometime during 2017, under pressure from his daughter, Rob confessed to Jill. Jill's sisters, friends and daughters said that she was understandably devastated. She and Rob had been married for close to 30 years at that time, and now she was being faced with the knowledge that their relationship had not been what she believed it to be. Jill was a private person and did not share many of the details with her family or friends, but she would say that they were struggling as a couple. Jill did initially approach a divorce attorney to discuss her options. She received paperwork from the attorney, which she and Rob went through together. But then, they seemed to have decided to work on their marriage and try counselling first. The couple started seeing a joint therapist, and Jill also had her own therapist. She was placed on medication to help her deal with the trauma she was living through. By all accounts, Rob had told Jill that he was committed to saving their marriage. He claimed that his relationship with Miss X was over and that he had never really had feelings for her anyway. Rob, though, had not stopped seeing Miss X, and two very different versions would emerge about what was happening between the two at the time. Rob would later claim that Ms. X had told him to work on his marriage and try to fix things with Jill. He claimed that during this time, he and Ms. X were merely friends and confidants, although he still had feelings for her. Ms. X, however, said that she was given the impression that Rob was simply ironing out the details of a separation and eventual divorce with Jill, and that they were, in fact, soon going to be in a committed and exclusive relationship. It would be during this period that Rob would tell her the words that would eventually become rather infamous. He said, quote, I love my life but I don't love my wife. End quote. This narrative would soon seemingly be confirmed for Ms. X when he said that he wanted to live with her for a month. This period of separation seemed to come at the end of 2017 or the very beginning of 2018, and in retrospect, it seemed to have been engineered by Rob. 
the month of physical separation between Rob and Jill was presented to their family as something the therapist had suggested to help the couple work through their differences. But when later asked about this, the therapist says that it had actually been Rob's suggestion and the therapist had simply agreed that it could be helpful. The idea, though, was that Rob would stay with his sister in Tokai, but that wasn't what happened. In fact, he spent that month of separation for introspection with Miss X. For her, of course, this confirmed what Rob was telling her. He was in the process of separating and divorcing from his wife. For Jill, it seemed to confirm that Rob was committed to working on their marriage. It's difficult to know exactly what was going through Rob's head at this time. He seems to have thought that he could somehow continue to juggle both relationships. He could be the successful businessman with the wonderful marriage to the beautiful, intelligent wife of three decades, and he could also have the excitement and specific sexual gratification he seemed to get from his relationship with Ms. X. He just didn't seem to want to tell either woman that, in his plans, she was never going to be the only one in his life. Jill understandably did not trust Rob, and it's alleged that she checked up on him at work regularly. It had become common knowledge at Rob's place of employment that he'd been having an affair and that Jill was checking on his whereabouts when she phoned the office. Rob had too frequently travelled to Johannesburg for business, and Jill was uncomfortable with these trips. After all, she could have no idea who was actually accompanying him. In early February 2018, Rob had gone on an extended trip to Johannesburg. He returned on the 18th of February. On the 21st of February, the couple had a therapist's appointment booked in the late afternoon. Just a few hours before attending couples' therapy with his wife, Rob was visiting with his girlfriend. Ms. X would later say that she had been becoming a little impatient with what seemed like an extended period of time that Rob was taking to sort out his divorce. During their conversation on the 21st, she once again asked him when they were going to be able to start their life together. He assured her that his separation from Jill would be finalised soon. Placated, Ms. X kissed him goodbye, and Rob headed out to meet his wife at the therapist's office. Rob Packham himself would say that the entire basis of couples' counselling is that both parties have to be 100% honest. He would admit that he had not been completely honest during most of their sessions, but on the 21st, he claims that changed. The session on the 21st ended with Rob admitting to Jill that he had feelings for Miss X. Jill, who up until this point had been led to believe that the affair had been of a physical nature only, 
was once again plummeted into the depths of despair. The couple returned home and an enormous argument ensued. At some point in the evening, Jill's daughter phoned her mother's phone and her father answered. He told the young woman that he and her mother were arguing and she couldn't come to the phone. She did hear her mother in the background at that point. According to Rob Packham, the couple had eventually ceased arguing and gone to bed. The next morning, they'd woken as normal and prepared for work. He'd gone for a jog and returned home. By 7am, Jill was ready to leave for work, as was her routine. Jill's drive to work would have her facing early morning traffic, which in Cape Town, as in many major centres of South Africa, is a nightmare. Only four kilometres separates Riesling Road and Springfield Convent School in Weinberg, but Jill had to leave by 7am to get to work on time by 7.30. Jill Packham was a reliable person. She followed a routine and had never stayed away from work without advising her employer. So when she did not arrive for work by her start time, Someone from the school's office immediately called her cell phone. It was switched off and went straight to voicemail. They then tried Rob's phone. It too went straight to voicemail. Now even more concerned, they called the couple's daughter Nicola. She had not heard from either her mom or her dad that morning, she said. With both their phones off, She wondered if they'd perhaps had a therapist's appointment that morning, and maybe Jill had forgotten to let her work know. Nicola told the school that she'd try phoning around and see if she could figure out where her mother was. At 9.45 that morning, CCTV footage shows Rob Packham's white Audi Q5 pulling into the parking lot at Twizzer's premises in Belleville. His cell phone, which had been switched off from approximately 7am, is now switched on, and several voicemails and messages come through. The school and his daughter are wondering if he knows where Jill is. Footage shows Rob immediately turning around and walking back out to his vehicle while on the phone. He drives out. Rob says that at this point he starts to drive the routes that Jill would have taken to work that morning. He says he thought that she may have broken down on the side of the road. When he finds no sign of her dark green late model BMW, he starts to drive to places that Jill enjoyed going to, including a beach in Musenberg and Chapman's Peak. At 10 a.m., He sends a WhatsApp message to Ms. X, telling her that he feels, quote, frazzled, because Jill did not arrive at work and he's out looking for her. At one point, he goes back to their home, saying that he thought she may have gone back there, but the house is quiet and the alarm is still set. He also goes to her place of work. He doesn't find her. In the meantime, he's spoken to his daughter and told her that he is looking for her mother, but that he's not seeing any sign of her or her vehicle. 
Nicola Peckham takes to social media and makes a Facebook post about her missing mother, asking anyone with information about Jill's whereabouts to contact her. In Diepruffier, later that afternoon, Sergeant Ivan Sonnenberg of Diepruffier Police Station comes across Nicola's post. He sees that the woman has gone missing in his jurisdiction. Her profile, that of a seemingly stable, employed wife and mother with a consistent routine, has his hair immediately standing on end. He knows that this woman has not been reported missing at his police station. If she had, he would already know about it. While he finds this strange, he continues on with his day. Jill and her sisters had a family WhatsApp group that they used to communicate on. That day, Sue Humphreys, Jill's sister, receives the first message to say that Jill is missing. She doesn't say where the message comes from, but it's not from Rob. Jill's other sister says that the first time he contacts them is four days later. Throughout the 22nd of February, many people try to find Jill. They call her phone numerous times. It's never picked up. Rob dials his wife's number just twice that day. He sends her a single message. Where are you? On a normal day, cell phone records would later show Rob would call Jill at least four times. Jill would ordinarily call him just once or twice. This pattern starts to call into question Rob's claims that Jill was constantly checking up on him after she'd found out about his infidelity. If anything, he seemed to be in contact with her quite a lot. During the day, he contacts a colleague at work. Again, two different narratives would emerge about what was said here. The colleague says that Rob told him that if anyone asks where he was that morning, he should say that he was at the factory from 8.30am. Rob says that he told the colleague that if Jill called or came to the factory, he should say that he'd been there at 830 and was now out looking for her. Rob tells his daughter that he didn't answer his phone that morning because he was on the factory floor and didn't hear it ring. Rob's sister in Tokai hears that Jill is missing and suggests he contact the Pink Ladies, a missing persons advocacy and networking organisation. He tells her that his daughter tried and they can't do anything without a case number. At 5.30pm, Rob Packham walks into Weinberg Police Station. He speaks to a data capture at the front desk and says he wants to report a missing person. He alleges that the woman tells him he has to wait 24 hours. He further alleges that he refused to accept this and demanded to speak to someone higher up. The woman relents and asks him to take a seat and she'll go get an officer for him. When Detective Labaskachny walks into the front office, he'll say that he couldn't quite figure out who he was supposed to be speaking to. 
He'd been told a man wanted to report his wife missing, but out of the few people in the office, the only male seems far too relaxed to be the person in question. He approaches Rob Packham, who's leaning back in a chair, texting on his cell phone, and introduces himself. Rob confirms that he is the missing woman's husband. After receiving some initial information, Labaskachny realizes that the case does not fall under his jurisdiction. Jill was last seen in Constantia, so he tells Rob that he will need to make the report at Deprefia police station. Something nags at Labaskachny, though, and he starts to ask more questions. He asks Rob about Jill's circumstances, about whether they'd perhaps had a fight, and she may have just needed some time away. Rob seems hesitant to answer, he says, so he explains the process that he'll have to go through at Deprefia, which forms to fill out, and he tells Rob to let them know that he'd spoken to him by name. He gives Rob his contact details, in case he needs anything else, reminding the man as he leaves that he will need Jill's ID number and a recent photograph to complete the report. Labaskachny places a call to Deprefia police station, letting them know that the gentleman is headed out to them and that they should alert specialist detectives when he arrives. But Rob does not arrive at Deprefia police station to report his wife missing. In alternating accounts, he will say both that he forgot and that he was actually under the impression that Labaskachny was going to make the report on his behalf. Either way, Jill Packham is still not reported as missing. Instead, Rob goes to his sister's house in Tukai for dinner. He says that he pays his cell phone little mind at that point and doesn't realise that his battery is dying. He has dinner with his sister and leaves at about ten past nine at night. Although Rob has a phone charger in his Audi Q5, and he'd been accustomed, by his own account, to plugging his phone into charge when he got into the car, on this night, he says he's too distracted and doesn't notice his phone dying shortly after he leaves his sister's house. Whether his phone battery dies or not, Rob Packham's phone is powered down at this time and stops pinging on nearby towers. Just after 9.30pm that night, emergency services receive a call from a resident of a home near Deprefia train station. There is a vehicle on fire, the caller says. Simultaneously, Nicola Packham receives a message. A man who'd seen her post on Facebook earlier that day had commented to say that he had contacts within emergency services in the area and he would keep an eye out for her mother and her vehicle. Just before 10pm, he messages Nicola to say that a vehicle is on fire at the train station. From what his contacts can see, it looks like a green BMW. Nicola Packham tries to phone her father, but his phone is off. She phones her aunt, Rob's sister, and tells her the news. Back at the scene, 
firefighters manage to extinguish the blaze. The vehicle is badly burned. A tree nearby has also set alight, and the ground around the vehicle is scorched. An accelerant has clearly been used in the fire, and first responders contact Deprefia Police Station and ask officers to respond to the scene. Sergeant Sonnenberg is among those that respond. When he sees the vehicle and realizes it matches the description of the post he saw on Facebook earlier that day, they pop the boot. Inside is the burned body of a female. Scorching on the body is most severe at the extremities, but there are patches of skin in between that are identifiable. One side of the woman's head is less burned than the rest, and Sonnenbach can identify the hair colour and type. He is able to initially say that it is the body of a white female. He thinks about the Facebook post again. His office has still not received a missing persons report for Jill Packham. When Rob's sister receives the call from her niece, she also tries to phone her brother. Initially, she's met with his voicemail. Eventually, though, the phone rings and Rob picks up. He explains that his phone battery had died and he'd only noticed when he got home and he had to charge it a bit before it would switch on. His sister tells him about the burning car. She arranges to collect Rob from his home in her vehicle and she, Rob and a family friend, go to Deprefia police station. At the police station, very little information is available about the burned vehicle. Sergeant Sonnenberg is still on the scene, so the trio head out to the train station to see for themselves. There they are informed that a body has been found inside the vehicle. Sonnenberg leaves the forensic team to collect what evidence they can. There are clear tyre tracks near the burnt car, and impressions and photographs will be taken as evidence. The seasoned officer then heads back to the station with Rob, his sister and the family friend in tow. At the police station, Rob claims that he wanted to make the missing person report that he'd not done earlier, but he does not have a photograph of his wife. Sonnenberg gives the family the little information he has and explains that there are no license plates on the vehicle and it would be impossible to confirm for sure without further investigation, but early thoughts are that this is indeed Jill's vehicle, and in turn it is highly likely that the deceased white female in the boot is Jill Packham. Of course, DNA tests will need to be conducted to ascertain this for sure. As is procedure in matters like this, Sonnenberg calls a trauma counsellor and asks her to chat with the family to help them start working through what they're experiencing. Rob will later say that he found this process frustrating and entirely unhelpful because he wanted facts and not counselling. With the counselling abandoned, Sonnenberg asks Rob to step into his office to provide him with a statement. Rob says that he's far too exhausted and distressed to do that, and they arrange to meet at the police station 
at 8.30 the next morning. Rob's sister drops him off at home, where he says he tries to get some sleep. About an hour after being dropped off at home, a police officer arrives at the Packham home to collect a photograph of Jill. In the early hours that follow, messages and phone calls spread the news of the discovery among Jill's family around the world. Her sister in the United States is horrified that her sister may have been alive when the car was set alight. The Packham's daughter, Nicola, arranges to fly to Cape Town from Johannesburg, and their other daughter, Kerry Ann, starts to make arrangements to travel back from her home in the UK. There is a sense of uncertain loss. No one can start to grieve until they know for sure that the body in the car is Jill. Although Rob tries to sleep that night, he says he finds it impossible, and instead he gets into his car and goes out driving. At 8.30 the next morning, Rob does not arrive at the police station for his appointment with Sergeant Sonnenberg. He's also not answering his phone. By 9am, Sonnenberg is concerned. He has no idea whether Rob Packham is okay, and gathers some colleagues to go out to the Packham residence. When he arrives in Riesling Street, there's no sign of Rob at the house. The police knock and call out for 20 minutes. Sonnenberg's concerns for Rob's safety are heightened, and he decides that he needs to make entry to ensure that he's okay. Just as they start to do this, though, Rob Peckham arrives at the house in his white RDQ5. Sonnenberg asks Rob why he didn't attend their appointment. He says Rob shrugs and says he's been driving around the whole night and forgot. Police ask him to accompany them to the police station, and he agrees. Before they leave, though, Sonnenberg takes notes of the registration number on Rob's Q5. He also takes photographs of the tyres on his vehicle with his cell phone. The registration number of Rob's vehicle has piqued Sonnenberg's interest, because they managed to find an eyewitness the night before. That man witnessed a white Audi pulling away from the area where the car had erupted into flames. The man got a partial registration number, and he saw that the driver was a white male. The partial number plate matches three numbers in the number plate on Rob Packham's car. Although the spouse of a missing or murdered person is almost always the first suspect, Sonnenberg's suspicions around Rob Packham were raised very early on. In the immediate aftermath of the discovery of the vehicle, he did not feel that Rob's demeanour was that of a concerned husband. He also felt that Rob seemed to have no urgency about identifying the vehicle or the body found in it. He never asked Sonnenberg if he had any leads or evidence to help find his wife's killer. Rob's version of events was that he and Jill had parted ways quite normally on the morning of the 22nd. She'd gone to work, and that was the last time he saw her. To explain his phone being off that morning, 
Rob said that he hadn't gone into work immediately because he didn't have any meetings scheduled, and instead he wanted to go to second-hand car dealerships to look into buying his wife a new car. He says he'd switched his phone off because he didn't want Jill to know his whereabouts as it was a birthday surprise for her. He hadn't spoken to anyone at any of the dealerships, and he said he'd just walked around the lots to get a feel for what he could afford in which price range. The Packham's daughter would confirm that her father had planned to surprise her mother with a new car for her birthday. Rob said that he had no idea what had happened to his wife, and he suggested that she may have been hijacked and murdered on her way to work. Then, Rob stopped answering questions. He refused to answer even the simplest of questions, like, when your wife leaves home, where does she normally go? To which he answered, in writing, I don't think I should be answering this question. Rob claims that at this point, he realised that he was a suspect, and that he needed to get legal advice. He did, however, claim to offer to take a lie detector test, a request he says was turned down by police. Rob confirmed that he and Jill had argued on the night before she disappeared, but he said that it had little to do with the events of the therapy session that day. He claims that while Jill had been upset at the time, by the time they got home and he informed her that he would have to fly back to Johannesburg the next day for business, considering he'd only arrived back on the 18th, Jill was understandably annoyed that he was leaving again. This would be the first time that Rob would tell anyone that he'd actually intended to leave Cape Town on the 22nd of February. Four days after the grim discovery of Jill's vehicle, Rob sent out his first message to family and friends. It read, quote, Sorry no comms. Honestly, worst days of my life. Family is traumatised. Tragic and scary. As I was the last to see Jill, I am a person of interest to the SAPS. Not a suspect, but under scrutiny. Very difficult. They found her car burnt out with an unidentified body in it. Terrifying and tragic. ID not clear until DNA by Wednesday or Thursday. Sorry, not much use to anyone right now. End quote. During this period, Rob stayed in contact with Ms. X. She would say that she'd felt terrible about the horrific turn of events and tried to be supportive toward Rob. Police were made aware of Rob's affair early on in the investigation. This, of course, only added to suspicions. Sonnenberg's early investigations brought in a wealth of evidence. A home two houses down from the Packhams had a CCTV camera covering the road. In viewing the footage, Sonnenberg spotted a dark green BMW driving slowly past the camera at 7.34am on the morning of Jill's disappearance. The vehicle was driven by a white male wearing a cap. The vehicle is spotted again on CCTV 
at 1pm and 2pm. Eyewitnesses would also see the vehicle around the Dipruffia train station during this time. One man, a member of a neighbourhood watch, recalled seeing the dark green BMW in the area about 1pm. In the vehicle was what he described as a middle-aged white male. The man seemed upset and was swearing out loud, shouting and slamming his fists into the steering wheel. The man was concerned and wanted to offer his assistance, so he drove up to the vehicle. The minute the man in the car saw him, he drove away. Although the license plates had been removed from Jill's car, police were able to confirm that the CCTV sightings were indeed her vehicle by comparing previous known footage of Jill driving the vehicle on other days. The car had identifying marks, and experts compared the images and conclusively proved that it was her vehicle. Police now had several locations which they knew were conclusively linked to the crime. They also had Rob's own reports of where he had been driving that morning. Sonnenbach applied for a subpoena 205 for the cell phone records of Jill and Rob Packham. The first thing Sonnenbach noted was that the last activity on Jill's cell phone had been at 9pm the evening before she was known to have gone missing. Her phone had not pinged on any towers since 7am on the morning of the 22nd, and even then it only pinged on the tower closest to the Packham's home. Then it went dead. It would emerge that Rob Packham actually had two phones. One was his work phone. This was the phone he'd used during the day of the 22nd, an iPhone. And the other was what he'd referred to as his private phone. This private phone, though, was not known to Jill and he confirmed that he'd started using it to communicate with Ms. X after Jill knew about the affair. The work phone travelled with him on the day in question, but the private phone had stayed behind at the house. The locations that had been identified for Jill's vehicle on the day she'd gone missing matched up with where Rob Packham's phone had pinged, but they also matched up with where he claimed to have been on the day. He had, after all, said that he'd been driving around the area, first in the morning to look for a new car, and then later to look for Jill herself. So, by Rob Packham's version, that means that the person that allegedly hijacked and murdered his wife had stayed in her vehicle and driven it all around the area from which he'd stolen it. The person had done this apparently with Jill's body in the vehicle, And at the same time, Rob had been driving around looking for Jill's vehicle, coming within a hair's breadth of the same locations at the same time, but never seeing it. Sonnenbach found this difficult to believe. In all his years in Deprefia, he'd never known a car thief to steal a car and then drive around the same area he stole it from for hours before eventually just setting it alight. While vehicle thefts are common in Cape Town, hijackings are nowhere near as common as they are in Johannesburg. 
for the most part. This is because there are few routes out of most areas, and limited numbers of highways to get onto for a quick escape. A car thief or hijacker would well have known that the minute their crime was discovered, Deprefia would be the last place they'd want to be. But they were still there, seven hours after taking the vehicle. A week after Jill's disappearance, DNA tests confirmed that the body in the boots of the burned vehicle was indeed that of Jill Packham. At the same time as this devastating news was confirmed, a small amount of relief was offered when it was confirmed that Jill had indeed already been deceased at the time of the car being set on fire. A forensic anthropologist would be called in to help assess the injuries to Jill due to the condition of her remains. Two autopsies would be performed on Jill's body. The first confirmed that about 90% of her body had been charred in the fire, and the presence of an accelerant like petrol was found. Jill was found wearing matching light green underwear and bra, a black and white checked shirt, and the remains of what looked like black leggings or tights. In her stomach, the pathologist found a recently consumed meal of meat and mushrooms. When the forensic anthropologist looked at Jill's bones, her cause of death would be determined. Jill had sustained at least three severe blunt force injuries to her skull. Two of the injuries had been on the right side of her head. The most severe injury on that side had immediately fractured her skull. The blow, which was near the temple of her head, had radiating fractures as well as concentric fractures around it. The fracture from that blow travelled all the way across her skull. A temple blow of this nature will usually fracture until it hits the petrous temple bone, which is the hardest bone in the body. But this fracture did not. It continued through that bone in the skull, and only stopped at the opening in the skull where the spinal cord joins the head. Here the energy from the blow dissipated into the open space. The second blow to Jill's right side was to her jawbone. This fracture went straight through her mandible, essentially breaking it in two. These two blows resulted in Jill's death, but at least one more blow was delivered, this time to the left side of her head, after she had already died. The fracture from the blow travelled along her skull and met up with the fracture from the right-hand side. Her skull was essentially in two pieces. A piece of plastic was found melted around Jill's left forearm, the pathologist believed it was a brace of some kind, but Rob would later say that the only injury on Jill's hands or arms that he knew of was a cut she'd got from handling a broken bottle in the recycling. She'd worn a plaster over that cut. The devastating confirmation of the identity of Jill's body came on Thursday, the 28th of February. The following day, on the 1st of March, 
Rob Peckham had a group of friends around to his house for drinks and snacks. By the time Sergeant Ivan Sonnenberg knocked on the door of the home in Riesling Street, he says that Rob appeared rather drunk. He quickly sobered up, though, as Sonnenberg advised him that he was being arrested for the murder of his wife. As his guests stood with open mouths, handcuffs were snapped onto the wrists of a visibly shocked Packham. The next day, police descended on the house. In the garage, they found blood spatter on the garage door, as well as on several items in the garage. Blood was also found in the ensuite bathroom of the bedroom that Rob and Jill had shared. Next to a tumble dryer in the garage, a neatly packed pile of linen revealed a broken axe tucked within the folded items. Blood was also found on the inside of Rob's driver's side car door. The blood in the garage and on the inside of Rob's car door would be confirmed to belong to Jill Packham. In the blood in the bathroom, only Rob's DNA would be detected. The axe head and handle did not yield any DNA evidence. Rob Packham's arrest surprised many, but a few, including Jill's sisters, were not entirely shocked. Rob's daughters were devastated at his arrest and did not believe for a minute that their father could be responsible for their mother's murder. Rob was charged with the murder of Jill Packham as well as attempting to defeat the ends of justice in that the states alleged he'd destroyed and attempted to destroy evidence. On the 9th of March, Rob was released on 50,000 Rand bail. As a matter of course, Rob was cautioned not to have any contact with state witnesses. This would include Ms. X, who had since told Rob that she did not want any contact with him as she was concerned about all the media attention the case was getting. She had two small children and did not want them being harassed. Rob failed to comply with these conditions and attempted to contact Ms. X on many occasions. In July 2018, Packham was taken back into custody, and while the state requested that his bail be entirely revoked, the amount was instead increased to 75,000 rand, and he was put on house arrest. He was also not allowed to have any access to digital devices. The conditions of his house arrest meant that he was allowed out of the house only for one three-hour shopping trip per day, or to attend church or see medical professionals. In October of 2018, Packham was accused of contacting a friend of Jill's, who was set to testify for the state. Police searched Packham's home for digital devices and found none. In December of that year, the state launched an appeal to revoke Rob's bail completely. Sonnenberg had received multiple complaints from neighbours that Rob was not sticking to his house arrest conditions. He'd also continued to harass Miss X, despite her obtaining her own order against him doing so. He'd sent her flowers, cards, letters, 
and used mutual friends to send her messages. In many of these messages, he expressed the desire to have sex with Ms. X. Rob was also still believed to be accessing digital devices for means of communication. One letter received by Ms. X was signed off by a Richard J. Hopkins. The state believed, from handwriting samples and his style of communication, that this was simply a pseudonym being used by Rob Packham. This letter read, quote, I write this to remedy the mistruths created. I so regret the damage caused. Any talk of threat or intimidation is utter nonsense. It was just him reaching out. He wears his heart on his sleeve for you. He dared to show his vulnerability. Stupid, maybe, but a real personal cost to both his girls and himself. He misses you. He said something about a small piece of his heart. I didn't know about this. Maybe you will know the meaning. It seemed significant to him. Do keep an open mind and don't judge. Have you stopped to consider that he's an innocent target of cynical police work? Or have you bought into the spin, the press's presumption of guilt via unfounded speculation? He deserves better. End quote. Packham was rearrested and found guilty of breaching his bail conditions. He complained that none of the allegations were true and that he was a victim of a smear campaign. He said he'd received threatening messages from friends of Jill and Ms. X. One read, quote, Your last free Christmas and New Year for 25 years. Next year's going to be a lousy one, but then that's what you wanted and meticulously planned. End quote. Rob's daughter begged the court not to revoke her father's bail because she was getting married in just a few weeks and wanted him to walk her down the aisle. While the judge sympathised with the young lady who had just lost her mother and now would not even have her father present at her big day, Rob Packham's disrespect for the court and its rulings could not be ignored, especially not in a matter as serious as murder. Rob's bail was revoked, and he was to be held in custody until the planned start of his trial in March 2019. In February 2019, Rob's defence attorneys once again attempted to have him released from custody pending his trial. Although the judge heard the appeal, it was unsuccessful, and Rob remained in the awaiting trial section of Polsmore Prison. While Rob was initially out on bail, his employer, Twizza, brought disciplinary action against him for bringing the company's name into disrepute. The charges emanated from Rob's request to his colleague to essentially lie for him and tell people that he was at the plant when he wasn't. It would emerge that he had not just done this on the day that Jill had disappeared. He had sent another message to the same colleague, on the Sunday after she disappeared, to check that he knew what he was supposed to say. Considering Rob had initially claimed 
that he only wanted to create an alibi in case Jill had come looking for him. The fact that he was still continuing the ploy after her body had been found made him look very guilty. The colleague had never actually told the police this lie. When asked, he was honest about what he'd seen and told police about what Rob had asked him to say. Rob was dismissed from his position at Twizza. After his dismissal, he contacted the company's HR manager to inquire about his Provident Fund. Strangely, he saw fit to email the manager all of his evidence in his murder trial. The woman was outraged, as his criminal case had no bearing on the payout of his Provident Fund. She immediately contacted police and reported the strange behaviour. Rob's attorney would say that he had only wanted his ex-employer to know his side of the story. After his dismissal, Rob could not keep up with the payments on his Audi Q5, and he was forced to sell it. His attorney contacted Sergeant Sonnenberg to let him know that this was going to happen. The Audi Q5 was a piece of evidence, after all, and getting rid of it without letting the police know first could look very bad for Rob. Sonnenberg asked the attorney to have the vehicle dropped off at the police station for a few days before it was sold, so that they could have one last chance to go over it. Sonnenberg had compared the tyre tracks found at the scene to the photographs he took of the tyres on Rob's Audi Q5 on the morning after Jill's body was found. The comparison was going to form part of the state's case, as the two impressions were almost an identical match. Along with eyewitness testimony, it put Rob's vehicle at the scene of Jill's burning car. So Sonnenberg was not averse to getting one last chance to check out those tyres before the vehicle was sold. To his surprise, though, when the Q5 was delivered to the police station, it had brand new tyres on it. The tyres that Sonnenberg had seen just a few months ago were perfect. They did not need to be replaced. So why would someone want to spend thousands of rands on brand new tyres, especially when that person has just lost their wife and the other income in their household, and to boot, just lost their own income after being dismissed? When Rob Peckham was asked... He said he had no idea what Sonnenberg was talking about. He had not changed the tyres on his car. And I emphasise the word he because this is exactly how he would phrase it every time he was asked the question, including during his trial. I did not change the tyres on my car. The implication, of course was that his car had not been in his possession all the time for the last few months. He had, after all, spent some time in jail, and although he didn't change his tyres, that didn't mean someone else hadn't. Rob didn't say that, but I think his phrasing leaves us open to speculate on this. Jill's brother-in-law, when interviewed on the Strangers You Know episode, pointed out that Rob had to have someone helping him out. He was bailed out, and no one knows who did that. 
it wasn't a small amount of money either. No one in his family had 50,000 rand sitting around, and then another 25,000 rand to throw in when his initial bail terms were changed. And then there were the tyres that had magically changed themselves. When Rob Packham's trial started in 2019, reporters would be surprised by the man they'd met in court. Although he appeared very serious during his bail hearings, he now seemed much more light-hearted. He regularly smiled and pulled faces for the camera. In one piece of footage, Rob is led down a long hallway. A camera films him as he goes. As he reaches a doorway at the end of the hall, he turns around and looks at the camera and gives a smirk. Then he puts half of his body behind the doorway and begins to play peekaboo with the cameraman. If you didn't know any better, you'd think this was a grandfather playing with his grandchild. But it's a man accused of a hideous murder and the worst kind of betrayal playing peekaboo with a journalist who's documenting his trial for the murder of his wife. I could not believe my eyes, to be honest, and I had to watch it a few times, but he really did seem to be enjoying the camera's focus. And to be clear, I would find that extremely odd whether I thought him to be guilty or innocent. During the trial, the state's case was that Rob Packham had killed Jill when he found himself between a rock and a hard place. As with many cases of this nature, each thread of evidence, while seemingly not damning on its own, would be woven together to produce a rather compelling tapestry of murder. The physical evidence presented included Jill's blood being present in the garage. Rob's defence argued that it could have gotten there when she cut her hand on the recycling the week before she was murdered. It does not explain her blood being on the inside of his car door, though, which Jill never drove. The broken axe found could not conclusively be determined to be the murder weapon. The pathologist would say that if it had been, then Jill would have had to have been hit by the back of the axe and not the blade end. The tyre marks were also included in the physical evidence, and the fact that the tyres on the vehicle had been changed, whether Rob admitted to doing it himself or not, was concerning. For Rob's part, his defence said that there was really no proof that the tyres in the photograph Sonnenberg had taken were actually his. They would never go as far as saying that the photographs were definitely not from Rob's vehicle. Rob's phone pings on the day of the murder lined up perfectly with locations that Jill's vehicle had been spotted at. I'm pretty sure that most second-hand car dealership places would have some form of surveillance in their car lots for safety's sake. And I wonder if his defence team made any effort to approach these places for footage. By the same token... If Rob could have given his defence team the route he'd driven between 7.30 and 9.45am that day, 
they would have been able to get CCTV footage from other businesses around the car sales places. Sure, this wouldn't have proven that he didn't kill Jill, but if he was seen looking at cars, it would have added more credence to his version. And then there were the eyewitnesses. Rob's defense did their best to push back at the lineup procedures that were used when the witnesses pointed out Rob Packham as the man they'd seen at Deprefier train station, as well as in the green BMW. They said that the two witnesses were transported in the same vehicle to the police station for the photo lineup, and they complained that only white males were included in the lineup. Sergeant Sonnenberg explained that there was only one vehicle available to his police station, and he could not allow the case to be stalled due to resources. Advocate Susan Galloway for the state counter-argued that the witnesses had said they'd seen a white male. If they'd included men of colour in their lineup, that would have skewed the results even more, because then the witnesses would have only been looking at certain faces. Unfortunately, in court, the gentleman that spotted Rob in the green BMW that day seemed a little uncertain. He was 76 years old, and when asked if he could see the man that he'd seen that day in the courtroom, he initially pointed out two men, Rob Packham and a man sitting behind Rob Packham. The judge eventually asked the man to leave the witness stand and walk to the man he was pointing out and place his hand on his shoulder. The man did so and stood right next to Rob Packham. There were further eyewitnesses that had seen Rob's Audi Q5 that day. Again, the defense insisted that these people may have just seen a white vehicle, and they could have been led to point out an Audi Q5 as the vehicle in question. The witness, however, refuted this, saying he knew cars and he knew what vehicle he'd seen that night. Police were able to access and check the information on Rob's personal cell phone, but the iPhone he used for work was locked with a PIN code, and he initially gave police the wrong PIN. When they contacted him to tell him that the PIN was incorrect, he said he could no longer remember the PIN, and said it was the police's problem if they had lost the correct code that he claimed he'd initially provided. Police were never able to access the iPhone. Rob's demeanour and behaviour, of course, was a huge part of the state's case. His seemingly cavalier attitude in the face of his wife's disappearance, forgetting to report her missing, never following up with the investigators to find out if they were making progress, and then continually flouting his bail terms and hounding his ex-girlfriend, despite her requests that he stop. Probably the most riveting part of the trial footage is when advocate Susan Galloway cross-examines Rob Packham. If you've ever watched this woman in action, she is absolutely no-nonsense. She knows her stuff, and is not someone that a guilty party wants to come up against, because she will tear them apart. Advocate Galloway 
has been prosecuting cases for the state for more than 30 years. She has seen the worst of the worst and put them behind bars. But she feels that her one trump card in coming up against Rob Packham was her gender. She says in the Strangers You Know episode that, in her opinion, Rob Packham thinks very little of women and generally approaches women with a condescending attitude. So for him to be presented with continual contradictions to his own evidence in court by a female advocate, in Galloway's opinion, was almost painful for him. She says that it was very easy to get a rise out of him simply by presenting him with his own lies. Rob Packham's defence was simply that he didn't do it. And really, all he had to do was present reasonable doubt that he could have been the only person to take Jill's life that day. To introduce this reasonable doubt, his defence presented other possibilities, including the possibility that Rob had always spoken about, that Jill was hijacked and murdered by an unknown party that day. The problems with this scenario, though, are immense. By his own evidence, Rob was in the house when Jill allegedly left for work that morning. If she'd gone to her car, got in, opened the garage, and been surprised by a hijacker, surely he would have heard her scream in fright. No bullets were fired, so we can assume this alleged attacker was not armed with a weapon, such as a gun, that he could fire if she screamed. So why would she not scream to get her husband's attention? If the alleged attack by an unknown person occurred after Jill had pulled out of the garage and closed it, thereby perhaps muffling the sound, it would have had to have happened close to 7am when she left the house. So where had the alleged hijackers waited with her car for 34 minutes before driving past the camera two houses away. Rob said he'd set the alarm and left the house at 7.30. How did he not see his wife's vehicle if she'd been attacked, hijacked, and the hijackers were waiting in the car somewhere in the one-house space between the Packham home and the home where the camera was situated? So none of that makes any sense. She did not come home after she left for the attack to have happened then because by Rob's own account, the alarm was still set and there was no sign of a break-in. A woman that worked at the same school as Jill drove past the Packham's home every single morning and she drove the same routes that Jill did. She testified that she did not see Jill's vehicle at all that morning. The possibility that she was attacked anywhere on her route to work is discounted by the fact that her car is seen two houses away from her home 34 minutes after she supposedly left for work. So with this evidence, and on a balance of probabilities, it becomes clear that Jill Packham did not leave for work that morning. She left the house, but when she did, she was in the boots of her vehicle. Rob's infidelity was a large part of the state's case too, because although they did not need to prove motive, 
it became clear that he was under pressure from the two women in his life, pushing at him to make a choice. His clear lack of grief over the loss of his wife and his continued efforts to win over his mistress made it clear that Jill's death had been what Rob had needed to live the life he really wanted. The state was not arguing premeditation in the case of Rob Peckham. In fact, they entirely believed that after arguing for several hours non-stop, Jill had perhaps told Rob that she was no longer interested in saving their marriage. Perhaps, speaking from a place of hurt and betrayal, she threatened to publicly embarrass him and tarnish his finely crafted image. Perhaps she threatened to financially take him for all she could, and the state believed that Rob Packham simply lost it and struck his wife with a heavy object. She would have died almost instantly, but he struck her again, perhaps once she was already in the boot of her car. Then he switched his phone off and left the house. Even Sergeant Sonnenbach does not believe that the murder was premeditated, because if it had been, Rob would have had a plan for Jill's body. He would not have driven around with her for so much of the day. The state told the court that they believed that Rob Packham had parked Jill's car somewhere that morning and then gone into work in his own car. They said that he had then parked her vehicle at Diprefia train station between 1 and 2 that afternoon. After leaving his sister's house, he'd switched his cell phone off and driven straight to the train station where he doused his wife's car in petrol and set it alight. He had then driven home where he switched his phone back on and received the call from his sister. I do not know if clarification was ever given to whether Rob asked his sister to collect him or if she had offered. If he had asked her to, I can only assume that Rob Packham did not want to go back to the scene in the RDQ5 while the police were there, as he was concerned that eyewitnesses might identify his vehicle. The details of Jill's stature and build, when reported in court, seemed to make the horrific murder and desecration of her body all the more cruel. Jill was 1.5 metres tall and weighed just 47 kilograms. When the pathologist testified to the extent of her cranial injuries and the burns to her body, her family were understandably horrified, but Susan Galloway would later note that Rob didn't react at all when the pathologist described how the skull of his wife of 30 years, the woman who had born and raised his darling daughters, had been split in two by the force of two blows. One thing I do wonder about is what Rob Packham did during his drive-about in the early hours of the 23rd after his wife's body had been discovered. Was this trip to dispose of evidence? To my knowledge, Jill's phone was never found, and we don't know for sure what was used to strike her. The state also believed that he'd cleaned up the scene to get rid of some blood, so perhaps that trip was used to dispose of all that evidence. On the 20th of May 2019, 
Rob Packham was found guilty of the murder of Jill Packham and defeating the ends of justice. Jill's sisters cried out in relief, while her daughters were racked with sobs. The two young women would later tell advocate Susan Galloway that they were not convinced that their father was guilty. During the sentencing portion of the trial, Rob Packham's attorneys were able to provide little mitigating evidence. Rob and Jill's daughter took the stand in mitigation, though, begging the judge not to take her father away from her and to allow him the opportunity to meet his future grandchildren and be part of their lives. In aggravation, Jill's sisters took the stand. Her sister Helen said, quote, Within hours, the shock and disbelief that Jill was missing turned to dread and acute sadness when we were informed that her car had been found burning and that her body was in the boot. It is a day we will never forget and which has created trauma, division and fear in our family. While waiting for confirmation from DNA tests, I had recurring nightmares about the prospect that Jill could have been alive in that burning vehicle. The thought of anyone doing that to my sister was unconscionable, let alone someone close to her. End quote. She went on to say that she held some guilt for not doing more to help her sister. For the rest of my life, I will live with the thought that maybe I could have done something. Maybe I could have pushed harder to get her to talk to us, or could have helped her emotionally or financially, and by doing so, maybe she would still be alive. I will never know the answer to that, but I do know that, collectively, we failed her. We failed to help her see that it is okay to walk away from a relationship or a marriage that was not good for her. We failed to help her to see that there are always options, and we failed to help her to know that she was loved by so many, and we would have done anything to help her. I can quantify the costs of counselling, travel costs to South Africa, but one cannot quantify the impact that this crime will have on me and my whole family for the rest of our lives. My children will never get the opportunity to take part in the biggest family reunion that was planned in over 20 years. They will not get to take part in their cousin's wedding. They will not get to feel what it means to be part of a big international family. We will not get to see Jill celebrating her daughter's wedding, or see her being a graceful grandmother, or share their birthdays, Christmas or other celebrations. All this has not only been taken away from me and my family, but also my sisters, their families, and Jill's daughters. One cannot quantify this in dollars or rands, as those events and memories are priceless. On the 12th of June 2019, Judge Elizabeth Stain handed down her sentence to Rob Packham. He was given 20 years direct imprisonment for the murder charge and four years for defeating the ends of justice. Two of those four years would be served concurrently with the murder sentence, but the other two 
would be served consecutively, meaning his direct imprisonment term would be 22 years. Rob Packham would go on to unsuccessfully appeal his case all the way to the highest court in the land. He has no further appeals available to him, and he is serving his sentence in Polesmore Prison. There are still a few things that bug me about this case. The first is that there was no activity on Jill's cell phone after nine o'clock on the evening of the 21st of February. Her daughter had called her, and Robert answered, and although her daughter said she did hear Jill in the background, Jill never made any attempt to get hold of her daughter after that. Surely she would have known that her daughter would be concerned to hear they were arguing. Yet, if Rob is to be believed, she just went to sleep without texting or calling her daughter, and then went to work the next morning without touching her phone at all. There's also that meal that was partially digested in Jill's stomach. Meat and mushrooms. It seems like an odd meal to have for a weekday breakfast when you need to get out the door. I'd also like to know if anyone could say what Jill was wearing on the day before she went missing. She was found wearing clothing that seemed to be appropriate for going out, a collared, checked, black and white shirt, and some form of tights, beside whatever else was burned away. Was Jill dressed to go to work in that collared shirt, or was she still wearing it on the 21st? To be honest, it doesn't really matter to the case whether Jill was murdered on the night of the 21st or the morning of the 22nd, but in my mind, the night of the 21st would make more sense in a lot of ways. The arguments would have been much more heated at that point. The only question in that scenario would be why Jill would have been in the garage at night. Perhaps she'd threatened to leave. The other thing that still bugs me is how Rob Packham got back to his Audi Q5 after dropping off Jill's vehicle, wherever he left it the first and second time. He is pictured alone in the vehicle. I don't know if police looked behind him in traffic to see if there were other vehicles following, but it does make me wonder about that secret bail benefactor and the tyres being changed. He may well have walked, of course. It's only 1.8 kilometres between the Packham's home and the train station. Rob was a fit man at this time. He jogged every day and used to take part in marathons. It would have been a bit risky, though, walking on the side of the road where any of his neighbours could have seen him. It would have been so much safer for someone to have fetched him. Although there are still unanswered questions about the murder of Jill Packham, perhaps the most disturbing one is how it's possible to live with someone for 30 years, day in and day out, bear and raise their children, and experience all of life's highs and lows together, and still not really understand what this person is capable of, until it is too late. Until the blow has already landed on your temple, your legs crumple underneath you, and all you see is darkness. 
I guess the answer is that it's entirely possible. And it happens more than we'd like to admit. Of course, not all revelations of a hidden life come as tragically as this. Sometimes we just wake up and realize that somewhere along the line, our partner became a person we don't know, or perhaps that we did. I have no doubt that Jill Packham would have done just fine without her husband. Despite being petite and mild-mannered, she was a strong woman, perhaps even a far stronger person than her husband. I'm sure that in her hesitation to leave him, she considered many factors. Her daughters would have been forefront on her mind, even though they were adults. A divorce would have been painful to them, I'm sure. But I think that what kept Jill there was two things. The tenacity she'd always displayed in life to get back up and keep going. Perhaps she saw this as just another challenge to overcome. And secondly, Jill stayed because she was not playing the same game that Rob was. She only had some of the information. She had no clue about the true depths of his deceit. And sadly, the mask only completely fell on the real Rob Packham in a single moment when he picked up whatever weapon he used to end her life and struck her with a force that almost instantly killed her. After more than thirty years together, she only really knew her husband for that one second. Rob Packham is undoubtedly where he belongs. Whether he's there for as long as he deserves to be is another question, but Polsmore is a far cry from Constantia, and he has a good, long time to consider how differently things could have gone. Jill Packham is described as a loving, kind woman. She was clearly a devoted mother, and would undoubtedly have loved being a grandmother one day. The anger that was leveled against Rob for his deed, I think is testament to the impression that Jill left on everyone she left behind. Looking at photographs of Jill, I can actually picture her as a school secretary, one of those kind ladies school kids would talk to when they found themselves headed into the school administration area. Jill was loyal to a fault, so loyal that when she didn't arrive for work, the alarm was immediately raised. No one doubted for a minute that Jill would be where she had promised to be if she could help it. Sadly, it is this very loyalty and sense of duty that may have contributed to Jill's demise. But then, for women in dangerous relationships, Leaving is always the most dangerous time. Domestic and intimate partner violence does not know racial or economic boundaries. It does not hide in the homes of the poor or downtrodden. It is a possibility in every single home in the world. And the sooner we realize that and take steps to ensure that we are never placing the needs of others over our own safety, the sooner we will start to push back 
against the scourge. But it is not the victimized partners, whether male or female, that should have to take steps to protect themselves. Rather, it is the responsibility of the perpetrator to recognize the selfishness of their actions and take a step back before it's too late. To end this episode, I will read you the words of Jill's sister, Rosalind, who lives in France. She said that Jill's murder had left a very big empty hole where her sister should be and used to be. How can this be true? She can't be dead. My kind, thoughtful sister is no longer with me on this planet Earth. How she must have suffered through no fault of her own, except that she was a woman wanting to be loved and respected. Rest gently, Jill. Thank you for listening to episode 59, The Murder of Jill Packham. If you enjoyed this episode, please be sure to subscribe to the show on the platform you're using to listen right now. You can also follow us on social media. We're on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'll be back next Friday with a Spotlight Minisode. Until then, as always, thank you for your support, and I'll chat to you soon. Mm-hmm.